0: Thank you for listening to the article podcast from the UBS Art Advisory Team in the United States, which guides individuals and families toward best practices and principles to build, maintain, and plan for exceptional, lasting collections. My name is Matthew Newton, UBS Art Advisory Specialist for the U.S., and host of these podcasts, in which UBS will share insights from practitioners in the art and collectibles world. While my guests and I sometimes discuss services and capabilities that they and their organizations provide, please note that UBS has no formal affiliation with any of our guests or their organizations, and in no way is UBS promoting or endorsing our guests or their organizations. And now on to the episode, podcast from the UBS Art Advisory in the United States. My name is Matthew Newton, UBS Art Advisory Specialist. Delighted today to have Sarah Douglas, Editor-in-Chief of Art News, join us at the UBS U.S. Headquarters on Avenue of the Americas in New York City. Sarah has an extensive career as an art journalist and editor for numerous publications for 20 years now. Prior to her time at Art News, she ran the U.S. Editorial Office of the Art Newspaper, wrote exhibition reviews and previews for the New York Times, was a culture editor at the New York Observer, where she launched the site Gallerist, and lastly, spent six years as a staff writer at Art and Auction Magazine and its website, ArtInfo.com. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, great. So this past, this past September, Art News released its 2023 Top 200 Collector list. For anyone unfamiliar, the Top 200 Collector List has been around since its first issue back in 1990 and has become a definitive source on some of the world's most active and important collectors since. In addition to identifying top collectors globally, it dives into their collecting habits and provides a view into some of the artworks they've been adding to their collections. So, the audience for this conversation is the family office clients of UBS and their financial advisors. One objective is to provide our family office collecting clients with insights into the habits and motivations of some of the great collectors active today. I also want to touch on the history of the top 200 list itself and what that may tell us about how collecting has evolved in recent years. So before we dive into this year's list and its topics, Sarah, I would love for our listeners to hear more about you and your role at Art News. Will you please share a bit about your background how you arrived at your role as Editor-in-Chief and what your day-to-day looks like.
1: Sure. So um, I took kind of a circuitous path to art journalism. Um, When I'm describing this to people, um, I guess I always kind of say the emphasis is more on the art part. Um, I did not go to journalism school. I studied art history. Hmm. Um, I happened to study art history at um, NYU when, I mean, I can't, I don't know what the department is like now, I'm sure it's still as good, but um, I'm very biased towards the time that I studied there, which was in the mid-90s, because I studied with Robert Rosenblum, who was um, unfortunately passed away in 2006. He was just an incredible intellect, an incredible writer, an incredible speaker. And you just felt so engaged in the material when you would listen to him give his lectures. And he always gave his lectures at 8.30 in the morning, which in itself kind of weeded out um, the folks of us who were like Rosenblum acolytes. Um, And I, in fact, came to NYU. I was going to be an English major. I was a writer. I wanted to be a writer. Um, I had, in high school, kind of gotten very interested in, like, the New York School Poets who were, of course, interested in painters. And so I was reading a lot about sort of poets writing about painters. There was an anthology about exactly that. And it came up, and yeah, this is all ancient history. But, um, right, so I was fully intending to be an art historian. I got a fellowship at the Institute of Fine Arts. I went there. I ended up dropping out. I realized, and I think this is important to kind of where I where my career ended up is that um, it was only when I got to graduate school and I had a fellowship and I did not have to work that I realized how much I had loved my job. And my job, which ostensibly was to make money so I could continue for before going to school, I was lucky enough to work for uh, Jack Shaman Gallery in the 1990s. And Jack and his then business partner, who unfortunately has passed away in 2014. Um, Claude Simard were, and for Jack, I mean, is still incredibly passionate about art. I learned so much from them. It happened to be during a recession. No one was coming in. People were coming in, but, you know, it was uh, a little quieter than than during an art market boom. Um, And so I just, you know, Claude, we would talk about, You know, the days when he would follow Joseph Boyes around Europe and, you know, we would talk about African art and Indian art and he would constantly be going into the back room to bring out some book that he wanted me to look at. And it just was a whole other kind of education. It also introduced me, as you can imagine, to the art market. Um, I was making out invoices. I became familiar with things like discounts for museums. You know, just the very, it was a small team. Um, then I went to graduate school, and I felt so um, sort of separated from the contemporary conversation. Um, ended up dropping out, didn't know what to do with myself, started writing these exhibition previews and sort of reviews for the New York Times' website, which then was called New York Today. This is like, this is Anne. You will not remember this because you're young. Um, it was called New York Today. And um, and then I got this incredible opportunity, which came up that the art newspaper was looking for someone to run their U.S. office, which then was just a tiny room. And it had been run by this woman called um, Ingrid London, who was amazing. And Ingrid London was moving to London, um, and they needed someone to run it. And I happened to get an introduction to... Um, the person who was kind of doing that search in New York. And it was an incredible sort of opportunity because it was a small office. I mean, it's kind of like the Jack Shaman thing. It was just myself and an intern. At that time, now that office is much larger. Um, But they basically said to me, like, you know, we'd love you to do, you know, we need you to run things, we need you to send, in, you know, images over to London because this was before JPEGs so and so easy to send, et cetera. And I had all these kind of things I had to do to run that part of things because more and more of the news was coming from, coming from New York. Uh, but then my other job was to be, quote, unquote, the eyes and ears of the art newspaper in New York and to write as much as I wanted to. So, as you can imagine, you know, I was there until midnight every night, like trying to pack in as much as I could, like writing as much as I could, going to see as much as I could, and it was just for me an entry into this thing called the art world, which I found and still find endlessly
0: fascinating. So. That's great. I, I, I love hearing that, and I have to say I was ignorant to the fact that you uh, as do I, share a background in the gallery world. It, yeah. it's kind of a, it is a, a really fantastic entree into seeing, you know, about as detailed of a way as you'd want to see yes. f- the mechanisms of the art world at that level. It,
1: it is, but I can't stress enough, you know, when I go to galleries now and I see how they operate, just how different it is.
0: Mm. What in, do you mean by that? In
1: every possible way. I mean, mm. now I'm not talking about, like, a gallery on the lower east side where it's literally the founder and one other person. That's a little bit different. But I mean, you know, galleries that are, let's say, mid tier, although it's such a huge category, and above, it's become like professionalized, I guess is the term for it. Like when I was working in the nineties, there weren't there weren't programs, you know, professional programs at universities. There wasn't Sotheby's wasn't doing this program. There wasn't the same kind of system for, like, getting an education to work at a gallery. No one would ever think that. It was just something you did if you wanted to help your artist pals, you know, make a living. Um, Anyhow, I'm I'm just, especially with the mega galleries, it's just, it's amazing how large these businesses are now. It's
0: remarkable. It is fascinating. I I have to say that also the... (coughs) You know, and we venture a little off topic, you know, with this idea of the top 200 list, you know, that's coming out uh, from Art News, and it's, I would say that's even probably part of the history of that professionalization, of sort of identifying these collectors and kind of understanding who they are. But I was curious, on that topic, I'd love to hear from your perspective some of the history, you know, of the list. I understand that, you know, this is now when Art News produces the Top 200 Collector List, it's its largest annual publication. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, I was hoping you could tell us a bit, you know, how this it start? Um, it's been over 30 years now, I understand. You know, how has it changed over that time, yeah. you know, from your perspective? How
1: it started and how it's going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As That's the right. name would have it. Yeah. Um, so there's something kind of ironic and hilarious about the beginnings of the Top 200 Collector's List. Um, which is that Milton Estreau, who, of course, um, had at that point been editor, publisher, and I believe by that point he was outright owner um, of Art News since 1972. He launched a list in 1990, and if 1990 means anything to you as <clears throat> in, in art market terms, it was basically he launched that list on the edge of a cliff. Not really knowing yet that the market was on the edge of the cliff. Um, And then, of course, by the following edition, it had fallen off that cliff, and it was, I imagine, a little more challenging to put together the list at a time when people, a lot of people, had stopped buying and were selling, and so on and so forth. Um, In terms of the list, you know, as the list qua the list. It really was the first thing of its kind, and as such, it maybe codified collection, collecting in in a kind of way. It it codified art collecting, um, because what it evolved into, and I can't remember if the first edition was like this, but what what it evolved into is what it is today, which is a listing of these collectors and it would tell you what they collect. So in what categories they collect, which the evolution of that is in itself fascinating Mm -hmm. because you ended up seeing more, first of all, more and more contemporary. I mean, contemporary has all but taken over the list at this point, Um, but that tracks with the art market in general. Um, But also uh, collectors collecting across categories. You know, in, in the beginning it was much more... If you were old masters, you were old masters. If you were a Christmas, that's what you did, you know. And, it, and that has changed a lot, um, and I think that tracks with things like uh, we were talking earlier about the Freeze Fair, the fact that Freeze would have masters, it's it's, um, it's for that collector that is very much crossing over between categories, um, which I think you see more and more. But the list, you know, at this point, you have things like Mary's List, you have, I mean, lists in general became more and more a part of the, of the um, art publication landscape. Um, and in fact, um, uh, Art and Auction magazine, I don't remember when they started their power list, but Art and Auction, which launched in 1979, had sort of their power list, which, like Art News' top 200 collectors, is not ranked. But which includes, included, unfortunately the magazine is no longer with us. Great magazine, I missed it. Um, But it it included, you know, curators and dealers and some artists. Then, of course, you have art reviews um, ranked uh, power 100. So, but in 1990, you didn't have all these lists. You know, you didn't have the Internet, which like made lists like even more of a thing. It's like listicles and lists. So... In a way, the Art News Top 200 Collectors is like the OG art room list. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing is, over time, the the main thing that happened with collecting, aside from the drift towards contemporary, um, is of course the you know the globalization of art collecting. Uh, which is not to say there weren't collectors in all other parts of the world at the time when Milton started putting this together, but they weren't as visible. And over time, and, and I think we actually did some graphs in in relation to this at one time, it was one of the anniversaries of the list, um, we looked at how collecting has become more and more global. So you look at the entry onto the list, you know, more and more Chinese collectors more and more collectors from South America, more and more collectors from, you know, all these different parts of the world. Um, and so and so you could see the, the list evolve with the trends in collecting. Um, I mean, I could go on and on about the various things that have developed, but you also have to remember that over the time that the list has existed, I was thinking about this on my way over. Among other things, art got bigger. Hmm you just had artists making bigger artworks. So you ended up having something else to talk about, which is collectors that wanted to somehow accommodate these larger works, and who would, you know, build uh, you know, different kinds of houses with gallery spaces to accommodate these very challenging artworks. Um, and, of course, the other thing that happened was the rise of art as an asset class. And I think you know we'll get to we'll get into this a little more but what that the central challenge that that has created for the list I would say is this issue of buying and selling and when I first started started working on the list in 2014 I would have a lot of people point to particular names and say well why why is that person on there they sell Why is this person on there? They sell, or this person selling things. I mean, that actually seems quaint now um, because we've entered a period where it is much more acceptable to sell things. Now, um, I would say flipping things is a little bit different from selling them, and we do have a look at that when we put the list together, but I'll let you. I'll I'll let you ask me about that specifically. I'm not going to go into it voluntarily.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So many wonderful topics that came up there. I mean, one uh, that you mentioned, several that I would like to get into uh, through the course of the conversation, but one that comes to mind right away is, you know, this idea of collecting broadly versus collecting narrowly. Mm -hmm. And this is something I think about, and I, I speak to our, especially our clients who are relatively new to collecting, about really thinking about that idea relatively early Mm -hmm. in their process of getting started because, you know, I think there's this idea of like, oh, I I like it, therefore I purchased it, is one way of thinking about it. You sort of follow that trail wherever it leads, you know, so, and I think that does sort of tend to lead into the market, into the contemporary market in in a certain kind of way, possibly. Or there's this other side, which I think, in some ways, to your point, feels a bit dated, even of this type of like real serious connoisseurship. You know, connoisseurship, like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm really going to know, I'm going to know this particular area of the art art history and who those artists are. It can be quite distinct. You know, get very specific and really drill down into that. And so a lot of times, I've noticed collectors will start with the one, sort of following the trail, kind of meandering way of collecting and then really latching on to an, an idea of a period they're very excited about and going in-depth into right. that field.
1: Yes. I mean, that that is certainly the case, that collectors start, start out broadly and then they find sort of their niche. But there's also this thing that interests me a lot, which we did an article about a couple years ago, which we called sort of activist collecting or mm-hmm. the activist collector, where you have collectors like, we just comes immediately to mind, Pamela Joyner, um, or... Uh, Komal Shah, um, the the former collecting abstraction uh, by black artists um, and the latter collecting art by women. And um, this was something we started to see more and more of on the list, is the idea of um, not just kind of honing in on your personal taste, you know, what you want to surround yourself with, but the idea of setting an example to other collectors and in so doing, activating a part of the art market, which when you think about it, is fascinating. So you would have a collector who looks at, and I've been on these panels myself, panels over the years, well, why are the prices for women's artworks? Why are they so low? Like, you know, and then you have collectors who are like, well, you know, why don't we do something about that? Why don't I set an example by buying this work, therefore raising the price, therefore making the thing more valuable? That's an interesting trajectory to me because it adds a layer to what you're doing because suddenly you have you have a cause you know that is close to your heart um and i think that's really interesting um i think that you know connoisseurship is at its most basic level is the ability to distinguish between you know you have three paintings from the same period, which which ones are merely good and which one is great. And that's where I think collectors have to lean a little bit on probably a, a trusted art advisor um, or historically collectors have leaned on dealers, but more recently we've seen some lawsuits related to fiduciary issues where that's concerned. But I'm fascinated by commissorship and what its place is in the art market today because the market has come to function, especially for contemporary art, so far outside of connoisseurship. The, the market has a life of its own at this point, when you're, especially when you're talking about the, the auction environment, um, that to talk about connoisseurship in relation to that is just absurd. I do think it still exists. Um, but anyway, but just mm-hmm. to, go, to go back to the issue of how collectors evolve their collections, there's so many stories of someone who... You know, began with a kind of random assortment of, you know, an impressionist painting, something modern, oh, some random contemporary thing that's out in art fair, and then they started forming something that is not necessarily um, that you can't necessarily articulate, but that is taste. And I have seen these collections where you walk in and they have the best artists, but they'll have something that is Excellent, but quirky. Mm. Like, you you know, I was in a collection like this in Aspen recently where the collector was saying to me, do you know know what artist that is? And I usually know. And in this case, I got it completely wrong because it was a mid-century artist who was doing something that, for reasons of very subtle influence, you know, going back and forth, looked a lot like something another artist was doing. And it was... I just thought to myself, that's a very, like, intellectual decision to do that. Like, I would, if I had the money, that's the kind of stuff I would collect because it says something about how, how influence works, how, how aesthetics trends change, how artists work outside what they normally do anyways.
0: That, that's all great. And I, I, it really reminds me of this idea that I go back to a lot that, I find that successful collectors end up sort of imitating the, the ways that our artists themselves function. They, be, they themselves become types of sort of storytellers, they, be, they become risk takers in their collections. You know, their, their collection takes on a type of personality and kind of fingerprint. To itself, you know the, really, so that really that, is interesting. Yeah, I love that you brought up uh, Pamela Joyner and Kamal Shah. and I, I think that those kinds of uh, that was actually a topic I wanted to get into this idea of the kind of rise that we could call it socially driven collecting mm-hmm. or or missional collecting, in a yeah. sense, which w- has certainly been a very important trend, both for collectors and as you as you suggest for the art market itself. You know, of really creating uh, markets around works that didn't exist before, or you know, to a degree that it didn't exist before. And that's been extremely powerful in its its work, frankly. You know, you've really seen the markets for some of those artists change, which I think is very important to see.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing I meant to mention before, actually, two things where you were asking me how the list has evolved, and then I always think about what's going on in the wider wider art world evolving alongside that and, you know, one has to mention the rise of the art fairs and the rise actually of the private museum, which were two trends that happened very much in parallel to one another. And so, you know, dealers would talk about, you know, collectors going around fairs to fill their private museums. And some of them would even say to me, oh, what happens when they're all all full? And I was kind of like, well, you know, there is storage. You know, but but on a more serious note, I mean, these very, very serious private collections like that of Eli Broad, which went from, I mean, I think he was on the first list, and that collection evolved into what is now a private museum with, with you know, something like a $200 million endowment. And that's, you know, that is a collector's decision, and that's someone who focused on, not a handful, it's not a focus on a certain number of artists and collected in-depth those artists' works. And it is an incredible museum experience. So you also had that happening. Um, So, yeah, running alongside the private museum phenomenon, which, of course, has been controversial as well in some circles.
0: That's great. Sarah, thank you for all of that. It's really fascinating hearing about the history of the list and some of the collectors have been a part of it then and now, I'd, I'd love to turn to learning a bit more about what goes into the, to the making of the list, Sure. Um, without asking you to share too much of your secret sauce, uh, hoping you could discuss with us some of the ways that uh, Art News researches the market to identify who these collectors are. Of course, you know, many make their collections public in some way and, and participate in museum exhibitions and often in Maine uh, after certain things. But also other collectors choose to remain very private. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious um, to the extent you can share, you know, how how you sort of glean some of the information from this.
1: Yeah, so um, it is a very complex process and what I can tell you is that it is, it by its nature, by the nature of what we're doing, has to be somewhat anecdotal. Because Of the privacy issues because of security issues so what our approach is is that we speak with I mean well over a hundred individuals who are very highly placed within the art world and the art market and basically the way we do that is you know I say to my sources um, this is completely confidential Um, I agree not to use any of that information in other ways that might be, frankly, beneficial to me um, as a news organization. Um, And um, the sources are also confidential from each other, right? I may know two people who are good friends. For all I know, they tell each other they're both sources of mine. But I would never tell one that I'd talk to the other and vice versa. So it is a, because, as you know from working in the art world, that's really the only way something like this can function. Um, because when people ask me, oh, is there some, you know, criteria you have? Well, we say um, generally we're looking for people who are spending over $10 million on art per year. Um being an active collector, acquiring things over the course of the year, we consider to be um, one of the, you know, criteria. Um, and so if a collector hasn't been as active, they might come off for a year and then come back on. If someone, our understanding is they're buy- they're selling more than they're buying, that person might come off for a year, right? Um, but... It really, it, I was going to go back to say, you know, people would say to me, oh, well, you know, do you have like a formula for this? And I would say, well, you know, um, if you were an insurance company, would you tell me all the details on your client's collections? Would you tell the, the editor of uh, Art News exactly what they have, exactly what its appraised value is? Exactly, but the total value, the number of objects. Would you give me that information? And the answer is usually no, because you would lose your job. You know, so it it can't be scientific. The other thing that isn't scientific about it is something very subtle, and that is, um, I guess, in a word, sort of influence, visibility, and then there's the philanthropic angle, right? There are folks on our list are exceptionally involved in the art world on a philanthropic level um, who are on the board not just on the boards of institutions but are very active on those boards and we actually take that into consideration because let's be honest the other thing that's happened to, to collecting since 1990 is that we could do the top 500 we could do the top 500 so when it gets to a certain level of collector I mean, you know, Pino, Arno, pretty much. You you can guess they're going to be on the list, right? When it gets to a certain level, you have to make some tough choices every year because it could be 500. We have thought many times about expanding the number, and we decided not to because, you know what, that's why people want to read it, is because it's 200. And if you know anything about the landscape of art collecting, Post-2005, you know that 200 is not enough to be very selective.
0: Do you find that collectors want to be on the list? I I think it's interesting because, like, I mean, I know many clients want to stay out of the public view. Yes. But I could also imagine that there are very real benefits to being associated as a top 200 collector. So I'm I'm curious what you've found.
1: Here's the reason I actually find the list so fascinating is that there are people who – will will only be on this list if I truly figure out what their name is and what they collect and I hear, you know, it'll be some person, like, in a word, there are Dr. No characters, but they do not want to be known and they likely have some pretty amazing artworks and the dealers know who they are, the dealers know, but these are the people they would never say the names and I find that completely fascinating uh, that there are folks out there like that especially as collecting has become more public and and people you know the art and the art fairs have been part of that right you have a whole group of collectors who would go to fairs and talk to each other about what they bought and then it was kind of like oh well I want one of those and you know and then then you see like the numbers start to change because there's more activity around this, which is very public activity, at least within the confines of a certain world. But there are still these mythic figures who are will never come to light, and yeah, Disgusting. I'd love to know who they are.
0: I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure we, we all would to a degree. Um, so on that topic, you know, I I I love this idea of the fact that you screen for the philanthropic side of, of collectors and, and how they contribute to the art world in that sense. And so you touched on that and a few other ways that the list has kind of compiled some of the, some of the filters and screens that are used. I'm curious if uniqueness is a way that the list is filtered. Are you looking for collections that are different from other collectors on the list? Well,
1: it's funny, They're, you know, it's hard because we try to not make those kinds of judgments um where we can stay out of it um you know it's a real question should like is there some kind of consensus art world consensus about what is good art what is you know valuable art of course we're part of that we're in the art world there is that to it i would say that is a part of it um and i guess it's hard to think Of a collection. I mean, look, you do have people who just accumulate. They just accumulate. They accumulate um, extremely valuable objects. There isn't necessarily a rhyme or reason to the collection beyond this is the best of the best. And you know what? They're going to be on the list. There's nothing totally unique about that. They may collect, you know, across modern and contemporary, but like the best, the best, the best. It's abstraction, it's figuration, it's conceptual. You know, that's what the collecting is. On the other hand, you know, like I said, there are people who have very specific viewpoints and are putting together collections in a highly refined way. And, in addition, I would say, and collecting challenging things. This isn't always about collecting, you know, things that have a value on the art market. A lot of the things our collectors collect aren't necessarily super valuable um, in financial terms um, but they are things that a museum would want um, and I think it's you know when it comes down to it that's the most vexing question when it comes to art is just the, the word value what is something's value
0: it's a, it's a great question I often have this conversation with our clients of the difference between market value and historical value, and then on top of that, even personal value. Sure. You know, what What's the difference between those things? And something can have extraordinary historical value and not necessarily ever be recognized in a substantial way by a market value. Likewise, you can have something that has tremendous market value, which we all know, and actually be Fairly inconsequential from a historical sense, but it's kind of interesting. I mean,
1: actually, I have two anecdotes about that that I think are really interesting. Just yesterday, I was listening to an interview with a sort of collector, someone who's very powerful in the art world, and he told this story about a painting that he found out later he was overcharged for, and he said that he couldn't look at the painting on the wall without thinking about being overcharged for it. And that it wasn't, essentially, it wasn't the same. He couldn't enjoy it in the same way, okay? Then, by contrast, um, like five years ago, I was in this collector's house, and I pointed to the wall, and I said, oh, that's right, like, you, you have that painting. And he said, I know what you're getting at, Sarah. Um, you know, that painting's not valuable anymore. He said, I, you know, I bought that painting, Making up these numbers, but they're pretty close to what he said. He, he said, "Like I bought that painting for fifty thousand, I had it on my wall when I could have sold it for a million. Um, now it's probably worth fifty thousand, and I don't care. I like it, and it's staying on my wall. You know, so that's the opposite mm-hmm. perspective, right?"
0: Yeah, it, it's great, I and mean, we love to hear about those stories of collectors who really follow their, their passion for the work, but are also being very kind of honest with themselves about what is it about that work that's important to them. You know, it, is that value, are they going to think about that, the fact that the work has changed in value one way or another, or is it is their interest in what they're doing kind of completely? And
1: they may honestly believe that history will um, be good to that painting, and they might be right, because nobody knows what art history will be, will treat well. It may be the opposite of what we value financially, right?
0: I think it's a great point, and having kind of a, a sober assessment of just how much that story can change over the years yeah. is, is very important, I think, for, for collectors to have. But so getting onto these topics, um, you know, the, the this year's list begins with a simple question, which I thought was great, which is, you know, what even is a collector these days, mm. and this considers the idea of when someone goes from being a buyer of art to a collector, and you ask these uh, collectors, we'll call them directly, what do they think defines a collector today. So, before getting into some of their answers um, and knowing that there's a, a range of collector of collectors, incredibly diverse, I wonder if, if you notice any common characteristics from your seed that you see emerge across this group from this year's list.
1: Um, I mean, I guess what I would say is it's, it's more interesting, like in terms of your question, is how did they answer the question? Mm. You know, when we asked them, because we asked all the collectors, what is a collector? The most common um, answer, uh, because we didn't print all the answers around the room to print, but the most common um, answer was uh, when you exceed the wall space of your home but you keep going and you need storage. So storage for a lot of people, and I include myself here to a certain extent, storage is is what separates the buyers from the collectors. But anyhow, um, but I guess that was the most common um, answer is that at the, 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 at a very basic level, when you start exceeding the walls of your, let's say, homes would probably be more be more apt. Um, and you start getting into storage, and you start getting into multiple storage spaces, you're a, you're a collector. Um, I would say also just from my experience, um, re, you know, reading and writing profiles of collectors over the years, there is a kind of obsessive quality, um, and it often, you know, when you some of the um, collectors from a from a um, an older generation, you know, our list, on our list, will say things like, "Well, I started with stamps, or I started with, um, you know, coins, um, then I moved on to art." And I guess, like, I would point to someone like Eli Broad who you saw this, and the museum is better for it, like the the Los Angeles is better for this tendency in him, is he, if he didn't have something from like this part of an artist's career, he wanted to fill in the hole, you know? So that's, to me, when you start getting into that level of refinement where you can't stand the fact that you don't have a, you know, a de Kooning from this period. But then it's not just that you don't have a de Kooning from this period, You you have to wait until one that's good enough comes on the market. So collectors spend years, like, waiting for the right thing so they can fill the hole in this artist's, you know, production. Um, I I love
0: that you bring up that idea of obsession. As a matter of fact, that was one of the the questions that I wanted to get to with you. There was – it was – Cheech Marin was actually quoted here in the list this year. When he was asked what defines a collector, he said – they are always obsessive. Yes. And I was curious if you if you agree with that, if you tend to see that. It sounds like you do see that.
1: Yeah. I mean, just think about it. Um, now, you could say that this is the, quote, unquote, old way of collecting because it has become, to a greater and greater extent, financialized. Okay? But, yeah, it's it's the idea that you are creating for your, for your – delectation, right, unless you want to share it with the world, um, a kind of your own maybe history of art of maybe a very specific period or one artist. And so you want all the dimensions that could possibly be there. Um, when you, I mean, I keep coming back to Broad, but before he had the museum, he created a lending library because he hated the idea of storage. It, storage was like anathema to him. He didn't want, like the idea of these things that he was so intent on getting sitting somewhere in storage, he wanted people to see them. And so he had this lending library, museums could borrow it. I mean, that's a great thing to do. It's also part, to me, part and parcel of the obsessiveness is, like, it needs to be seen. Like, it must be seen. You know, you,
0: you A belief do. in how great it is. Yeah,
1: and for some collectors, it is a bit of a contest, like, who gets the masterpiece, you know? Because when it comes down to it, there are masterpieces. And For it sure. is, like, singular.
0: Well, as one, you know? one great dealer said to me, uh, you know, he who get, gets the painting wins. Right. Although, of course, a dealer would say that. Um, uh, turning to an, another idea here, uh, or another quote, excuse me, uh, Jill and Peter Krauss noted that the rise in the belief that art is an asset class and they, they really see that among other collectors, this idea of artist and asset class, which has come up a couple of times in the conversation, but that their process, by contrast, is a personal journey of acquiring and retaining artworks that capture our imagination. And so of the collectors on the list, from your experience, how many are in this for the personal journey versus for the investment or asset side?
1: I mean, it would be impossible to give you sort of percentages on that because I think that it, in in 2023, um, even collectors who are in it for the personal journey, and I'm not saying this about the Krauses, but there needs to be a financial component because of insurance values and so forth when you have things that are valuable um, in that way. But I think that what Jill Krause is saying there is very important and she's been saying this for a while it's you know it's the idea of I think what it, it really at its. I've been thinking about this a lot recently but at its at its core it's in a way the idea that if you want to look back in history and see artists who evolve. Right, that's what we all find so fascinating. Right, when I was in um, London recently at Freeze Masters, Hauser and Wirth had two paintings by Frank Bowling. You would never know they were by the same artist. You would never know they were c- just a completely different style. And then both of them were different from the, the paintings of Frank Bowling that I and probably you, if you know his work, actually know. He went through these various phases. One of the reasons he was able to go through those phases is because no one was buying his work, so there was no reason to stick with something that was making money because nothing was making money. So he followed whatever the creative course was, right? You see this in a lot of artists, like someone as different from Frank Bowling as like David Smith. They're different, you know, and like okay, the Cubite sculptures are the most valuable ones, but isn't it kind of nice that he went through all these different phases and was just like, well, I'm done with this now. And there was no pressure from a gallery saying, uh, you might not want to move on from this particular series. Let you maybe keep it going a little longer. You know, with the classes, it's like they, they buy what they think is interesting, right? And that, to me, is an artist-friendly approach. They're saying, this thing that you're putting out there. It captures our imagination it connects with us there there isn't this kind of well someone else has one of those so we better get it um, and like when's the right time to sell this you know because it's an investment in someone's vision right when you're collecting contemporary art artists is around you're saying I support this thing you did um, it, it it strikes a nerve with me. It's something I want in my life to look at, to own, you know, to be able to lend to museums. I mean, to me, if you're collecting contemporary art, that's got to be part of it. Hmm. Then again, I don't take a position on these things. I'm merely an observer.
0: <laughs> uh. Well, those are great observations, so we're glad to have them. Um, so what, one more I'd like to highlight here, Evers Ebers uh, in the publication spoke to the experience of collectors by saying that serious ones can be determined by their personal vision, so going back to that idea, (coughs) but also the length of time they have been collecting. And it does tend to be true that accomplished collectors have been at it for some time, but I'm curious to hear what you're seeing among those who are relatively new to collecting. Are you noticing anything different about their approach from the sort of previous generations of collectors?
1: I mean, there's so many differences. I mean, to me, you have to go back to, uh, I mean, in, in the Top 200 issue, actually, Adrian Chen alludes to this. He points to, you know, the Internet, to digital ways of finding out about things as, you know, a way that collecting itself has changed. And I think that's true. I remember in 2013, there were all these articles about Instagram right, about artists becoming known through Instagram. So I think that the ways in which a lot of younger collectors are finding out about art, it's so much different from how um, previous generations have, and it's so much faster. And the, the whole process of, you know, finding out about an artist to buying a work, to, in some cases, selling the work, that can happen in less than a year. You know, the whole process has sped up, and the amount of information that's bouncing around is, is just, you know, orders of magnitude larger. So I think that that is a huge, huge difference. And the ways in which younger collectors are finding out about things, it's the seed, I mean, I would have to say. And and some people would point at, point at that and say, well, you're not giving yourself enough time to steep yourself in the history of art and learn about this and learn about that. Um, you know, there's a, like, quote-unquote good side and bad side to everything, right? But I think that a lot of, like, the... Um, the, uh, what would you call it, Tape, not to, not so much tastemakers, but the boundary keepers of the art world, um, that that's broken down. And that's ultimately probably a good thing that there's a lot of collectors that are kind of saying, eh, you know what, I'm going to go with my gut on this. And then in five years they end up being right. I mean, all of this can be encapsulated in some ways in the phenomenon of cause right, which we could talk about for hours. But that is largely the result of a lot of collectors saying, you know what, I like it. And, and that's it. Um, so.
0: It's such an important, such an important idea. And I, I bring this up a lot. I think it harkens back to, you know, from the historical period. Oh, not to
1: interrupt you, but sure. gatekeepers. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. The age of the gatekeepers in, in the art world in terms of taste, that, that I think we're past that.
0: Well, I think that's exactly it. In, in this particular moment with contemporary art where you have what what feels like a similar period to the, you know, Salon Fuse or something like this uh, in the 19th century where the public really demanded a certain kind of work that really wasn't, acknowledged so much about the the gatekeepers of of the time. And I think we do see that happening with some interesting developments around. It could be on sort of the edges of digital art or other kinds of experimental work. I'm always very excited to see about whatever the new sort of experimental work will come about and uh, capture our imagination from that standpoint. But this, Sarah, I have to say, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I think you have a unique perspective in sort of a bird's eye view of a lot of different types of the great mm. collectors uh, across at this point in history. So I want to thank you very much for coming on to, uh, to share your perspective of, about this. And uh, so thank you very much for being here.
1: You're welcome. That's Huh
0: And so you've been listening to the article podcast from the UBS Art Advisory in the United States. My name is Matthew Newton, Art Advisory Specialist, and thank you very much for listening.